The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you as always. Good day to you, Stephen. And before we get too far in, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a personal moment and shout out to our new campus dean at Kern County College of Law, Bud Starr, because I know for the past six months, Bud has been a regular live listener for us, and, and I know he gets up early in the morning to do that, and I, I just wanted to say, hi, Bud, if you're out there, thanks for listening, because I know he comments on our shows frequently. That's great, Mitch. I join in your uh, your best wishes for Bud, and I think it's great. Sounds like we're going to be under uh, great guidance and leadership in Kern County College of Law. No question about it. And and if I could, if I could also share just a a, a Sally Field moment, you know, for people who remember back the, that infamous flying nun, famous, famous yes, the flying nun. But we're talking more about her her movie days when you remember she finally got an Academy Award and she said, "You like me? You really like me?" Well, I I just wanted to shout out and thank our listeners. In May, we had the largest number of on-demand listeners in the the history of the show. So we're just a thank you to everybody who's listening, and we hope you'll continue listening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. And uh, I know it's not really good form to toot your own horn, but you've got to do it every once in a while, right? Well, I just, I think it's, you know, it's not just tooting our horn. It's, you know, what we've talked about as the goal for this show is that uh, the huge part of it is education, not trying to take a political tack to the right or the left. I know some people think we lean that way, and of course that makes it a little more interesting. But but it's education, and and the fact that we're getting a growing audience of people who are interested about learning more about the key legal issues of the week. I just it you know for you and I as educators, I don't think there's anything better than that. Yeah, I too am proud that we've uh, stayed the course, so to speak, and made it an educational platform. And we've done so with the great wisdom and addition of Michael Cohen and then occasional guests. And I think we uh, will continue on that track and just frame topics and talk about the legal issues. And uh, out of that arises some political issues, of course. We can't get away from that. But uh, I do enjoy, as do you, 
the fact that we've uh, remained true to that uh, platform and plan. Well, that's great. Well, today, today I, I don't want to scare everybody, but we picked a topic today. We moved away from the, the national events that are going on in Washington that have driven so many of the legal stories for the past several months. But we're, we're, today's more of a nuts and bolts story that is a revisit of a story we've done a couple of times, and it deals with consumer protection. Yeah, you know, Mitch, in in 2016, hacked credit card fraud exceeded $4 billion, a record level. Beyond the $4 billion in fraud reported year to year, there will be as much as $10 billion in fraud committed between now and 2020 as the window of opportunity narrows for hackers to cash in on stolen credit card data from magnetic strip cards and various other forms of fraud. So you're right, Mitch, we've talked about identity theft in past shows, but uh, it does seem that this kind of fraudulent activity is on the rise. It's insidious and it's uh, it's a tough, tough battle. You know, and Stephen, what worries me is that as we see the stories about companies reporting, you know, if they're reporting $10 billion, we don't even know how much is really out there because what we have seen, unfortunately, is the incentive is for the corporations to perhaps, we should say, not be as forthcoming as they should be in reporting this type of consumer concern because they're, they're f- afraid of lost business. And, and we just saw it recently. Now, here's a case where a company did come out, I thought, very quickly and attempted to address it. Uh, Chipotle Mexican Grill just recently this past month reported that they had a malware attack that actually hit the point-of-sale computers that you use as a register, because these really aren't manual registers anymore. It's the, the little mini computer sitting there that you put your credit card through, there was a malware attack. It hit virtually every one of their stores in the United States. And the malware attack, evidently, it looks like got away with people's credit card numbers. Yeah. So, you know, so when we put the card and uh, the chip reader into that machine or we swipe, uh, we do so... Uh, with a lot of risk, and there's a lot of things that happen with transmissions of that data and, and the, the prospect and the dangers of hacking. It's a, it's a widespread problem, and one of the things that I think we can talk about, Mitch, is what's the liability issue to, or that might fall on the merchant. Um, we can also talk about banks, because what's interesting, there there is a trend, I think, since really 2008, uh, where banks or so-called third-party liability lawsuits have actually been upheld, meaning that the uh, financial institutions have been held liable under negligence theories when uh, cards are compromised, credit cards are compromised. So the consumer rights aspect of this, I think, is something we should also get into. Absolutely. And and we'll spend some time going in detail about how you as an individual consumer can protect yourself because in the United States if it's a if it's a card that's been compromised in the United States there's very clear uh, protections that are regulated by the Federal Trade Commission and and we'll go through that in a bit but but I'd like to start where you started Stephen let's talk a little about the the basic laws that come into a place let's set aside the Federal Trade Commission piece because that's the protection side 
But one of the lists of things to do when your credit card has been compromised is to call the local police. Now, you've spent your much of your career as a prosecutor. Uh, I don't hear about a lot of cases where police and local prosecutors are able to track down credit card theft. But but what would the laws, what laws are in place? I mean, what what would be brought to you as a local prosecutor as far as a case for credit card theft? Yeah, so there's a number of theft-related offenses, Mitch, that are on the, the books um, via statutes in California. Um, all of them have as the root base um, larceny or some kind of a, a theft-based crime. And by virtue of statute and legis- legislative action, there have been crimes such as identity theft. So uh, one example is our California Penal Code Section 530.5, which is uh, identity theft or loosely called identity theft. And law enforcement typically gets called out at a point when the victim has discovered the wrongdoing. But as you well know, um, and as we've discussed in the past, that discovery is often very, very tardy. And in other words, uh, there has already been uh, a lot of financial uh, hardship in the form of theft and, and missing funds from accounts. So law enforcement would, would do an incident report, and then it would be incumbent upon really a collective effort to go back and unwind uh, all the events because often there are conspiracy-based kind of activities, Mitch, that go on here. Um, one example would be just uh, having somebody steal your mail so as to get uh, personal data. Uh, that's kind of old school uh, because most of the identity theft now is done over the Internet. So basically if somebody, let's start at the simplest form, somebody walks into a store and attempts to use a stolen credit card or attempts to use a stolen credit card number, if if that was discovered at that point of sale, the police could be called and that would be the, the simplest form, right? You actually have the person there in front of you, right? That, that's right. But, and, the, but one thing that it is kind of a harsh reality is that law enforcement uh, is obviously very busy. I mean, depending upon the jurisdictions, when they go out to what they sometimes call a paper crime, they'll take a report, but the actual closure or follow-up investigation is conducted through uh, the banks, and it really does call for the victim to be real vi- vigilant about it because there are certain things that the victim has to do right away to place the institution on notice so as to protect future rights. That's right, and we'll talk about in a few minutes that one of the things that some of the credit card reporting steps require is, in a, a case, as you've pointed out, of a large transaction, fraudulent transaction, they're going to ask for a police report. So uh, although I guess the, the the warning we would put out there is, although you say, what's the chance that anything's going to come out of this? And as you've said, it's just a paper report with perhaps a nominal follow-up. It ends up being 
one of the critical steps for protecting yourselves through the credit card companies or making a claim against the bank to be reimbursed for funds that were fraudulently taken. So that police report really does have an effect, and it is it is important, isn't it, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Mitch. I didn't mean to minimize the you know the importance of reporting a theft like that. Um, the there is often a resource problem for law enforcement to to actively investigate these kind of cases. I mean, depending upon the jurisdiction, but what often happens is that the initial report and discovery of some type of identity theft or a credit card being compromised by virtue of the theft does lead to many other suspects because there's mills that that deal with the trading of credit card numbers and pins. Um, it's it's quite um, a vast illegal enterprise where there's often very, very many uh, wrongdoers. Right. Now, I remember they, there was a time when every once in a while they would Great, you know, they would follow up on leads, and you'd find somebody in an apartment somewhere, and they they've got the machinery to copy to make false credit cards. They've got uh, stolen records, and you could actually make that arrest. But as you've pointed out, that's really a crime of the past. Now, what appears to be the case are these massive hacks, where the number lists are then transferred internationally, and the damage is being done well outside the d- jurisdiction of the local police. That's right. So let's talk about the other piece before we get to our first break, which is you mentioned civil liability. So it, it, it raised the question to me. Uh, we saw, and we can talk a little more about it, that recently Target, uh, the Target stores from the 2013 hack where they lost almost 40 million records of card members, uh, they've fairly recently paid a, a fine, $18.5 million fine, back to the various states uh, that had to investigate those those thefts. They paid another $290 million in, in losses to the bank, reimbursement to the banks and to customers. But you've raised the question of negligence, and it also made me think about whether there's a contract breach issue. Obviously, if the company was negligent in somehow handling that. I get it. But it made me wonder, and I don't know if I have the answer, when when you use a credit card at a store like Target, is the contract for use of that card between you and Target, or is it really the contract between you and the credit card company? Because it sounds like all the actions are between the consumer and the credit card company, not between the consumer and the store. Yeah, you know, Mitch, I think the, uh, well, my quick answer is going to be, it would be more uh, a relationship between the consumer and the credit card company. However, it is a point of contention, especially when we're talking about massive amounts of fraudulent takings. So uh, that one is a dispute very often because Target, for instance, or the merchant could also be a target defendant, but I think ultimately the card issuer is going to be uh, probably the more culpable or potentially liable party. And we can get into that a bit more after our break because it does bring up the issue of negligence and and your reference to contract is also a good uh, issue that we could talk about because there's going to be some duty issues um, and there's duties imposed upon the financial institutions. 
Well, that's good. Well, after the break, we'll talk about that. And we will, as promised, get into all the various steps required to protect yourself. And when this happens, and I have to say, it happened to us three times in the last two years. So Let's I've do it. Been- when we come back, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about credit card fraud and identity theft. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about credit card fraud, and we were just about to get into the discussion about uh, what consumers can do to protect themselves if, in fact, they are victims of identity theft. And uh, 
also embedded in our discussion was the issue of third-party liability, Mitch. We were talking about uh, really where the buck stops, and is it is it the credit card issuer who is ultimately liable, and if so, what kind of theory might apply so as to uh, expose banks to uh, liability? Right, and I think one of the things to start out with is, is something we talk about in law school, Stephen, that clearly there's a third party or a fourth party in our discussion here uh, who's, who has been guilty of a misdeed, right? So you have the thief, and so the thief is the person who truly is liable for this, but in virtually all of these cases, we never actually find the thief, right? It's pretty rare on these international hacks to find someone within within a jurisdiction and information that could actually catch them. That would have to be the FBI and Interpol and people at that level to actually catch one of these international hacks of these tens of millions of records, right? That's true. So, so, but despite the fact that it's the thief's fault, you raise the question of negligence. So the corporation, the target in this case, and we'll pick target because they've been in the news since 2013 in this hack, they have an obligation to not be negligent, right? So it's a civil it's a civil liability of their negligence. Right? It is, Mitch. And you know what's interesting? If you look at it historically, uh, the, the banks would actually be considered victims, typically. You know, that's the way these identity theft cases were treated. You know, law enforcement would look at the bank or the financial institution as the actual victim. But the latest trend has been actually to... Uh, look at the banks as a potential defendant and courts have welcomed theories really under a negligence claim where the financial institutions have actually been held to be negligent uh, and the action centers upon the duty of the bank because we've you know we've talked about the elements of negligence many many times there's a duty a breach causation and damages as elements there. And most of the action centers on duty and the question of whether or not when a bank issues a credit card, do they actually guarantee or offer uh, protections? So that's that's an interesting point. And so that, that would be a giant lawsuit though. So I guess that's the reason we look to the government in this case, and this would be the fair credit billing Act and the Electronic Fund Transfer Act, that that really is a, a, I want to say a double-edged sword, but in this case, I mean in a good sense. First of all, it gave banks, the, the in essence, the protection to issue millions upon millions of credit cards with the cardholder's assurity that their liability would be limited. So without that protection, they wouldn't have the business of issuing credit cards and getting interest payments and fees for it. So that that's their side of what they get. But the consumer gets, and let's just throw this out there because that's why we'll spend a little more time talking about the negligence factor you talked about as a future claim. So if if your credit card is stolen and, and you've got a United States credit card and you're under the Fair Credit Billing Act or the Electric Fund Transfer Act, there's a, a statutory limit of $50. So you, you will not lose more than $50 if your credit card is stolen and you notify the credit card company 
in a timely manner. And in fact, if you notify them before any unauthorized charges are made, you have zero loss. So the minute you think it's been compromised, you need to contact your credit card company and you'd say, well, where do I find them? It's on the back of every credit card. There's a, right. So, so the, the, the public service announcement there, Mitch, is be vigilant. Call in right vigilant. away. The minute you think there's a problem, you call in. If, if you call within two business days after you learn about the loss of the theft, then the statute kicks in and you've got a $50 limit. If you contact them after two days when you learn about it, not when it happens, but when you learn about it. So it could be when you get your statement three weeks later and you see the unauthorized charges. If that's when you first knew about it, you have two days to notify the credit card company. Your limit is $500. The, the worry, though, and what you need to be, go back to your point of being vigilant, if you notify the credit card company more than 60 days after your statement is sent to you, then you could lose all of your losses if it's an ATM or a debit card. You're still limited to the $500 on the credit card, but if it's a debit card, then you could lose everything. If they've drained your account, it's a huge loss. So you're alert to people to be vigilant. It goes back to the consumer's responsibility that even though this happened to you, you still have a duty to to be aware and to be vigilant about the use of that card. Yeah. So, let, Mitch, let me stir the pot a little bit and set up a hypothetical because I think this one's consistent with um, what happens out there with credit card fraud. So, the uh, card holder goes in to make, and I'm going to go with an electronics purchase, okay? So, consumer goods, hypothetically, goes to a merchant, Acme Electronics Company, and makes a purchase, let's go with $5,000 worth of goods. And it turns out that uh, the card, the person that presented the card, is actually um, in wrongful possession. Okay, so someone, your card is used at a merchant to purchase electronic goods, and it's $5,000. Let me make it even scarier. Let's say it was ordered online from an electronic website of one of those big box stores, it'd be the same scenario. So this is true. This is true. Okay, good. So $5,000 and they, they give the card online through the website. That's right. Okay, so, so wrongdoer does get the goods. Okay, so we've got the so-called caption and the taking of the goods. All right? So if you look at it in those terms, the merchant, I hope, to most people, would jump out as a potential victim. Goods have been uh, sold to someone who should not have purchased them. That's right. And as we're going to see at the end of the story, the merchant does end up losing that if the consumer has protected themselves. But go on down the line. That's right. Okay. So someone's in wrongful possession of consumer goods, and they obtain the goods by virtue of using an instrument of trade, all right, and that would be fraudulent credit card information. All right. So now we have the card holder, okay, the individual in whose name the card has been issued, and we have the financial institution and we have the merchant as our three parties, right? Correct. So there's our storm. There's our, our players in the storm. Okay. 
So once it's discovered that the card was fraudulently used, the merchant is going to want to step up to protect their rights, correct? That's right. And the card holder is certainly going to want to step up to protect their rights. That's correct. So, so the question, of one of many, is what is the liability on the part of the card issuer, which would be the financial institution, must they stand behind the purchase and somehow uh, make the merchant whole and make the card holder whole? That's right. So let me take the easy one first. So as we mentioned, if it's a credit card, the card holder is only liable for 50 bucks unless they've notified of the theft of the card or loss of the number before there was a charge. But in your scenario, there's already a charge. It's on the card. They've discovered it. They notify the credit card company. By statute, their limit is $50 if it's a credit card. If it's an ATM or debit card, then, again, if they notify before there's been a charge, it's $0. But in the scenario you've discovered, now the time is ticking. ATM or debit card from the card holder, if they report within two days after they learn about it, it's a $50 limit of the loss. If it's more than two days but less than 60, it's a $500 limit. But if it's more than 60 days and it was an ATM or debit card, they could be liable for the $5,000. Okay, so the embedded message there, once again, is to be uh, proactive and affirmative. Check your statements and report immediately so as to protect yourself and avail yourself of those protections, right? To limit your exposure. That's correct. Okay. Now, merchant side, the merchants out $5,000 of consumer goods. That's correct. And some bad actor is in possession of those goods. That's correct. So if you stand in the shoes of the merchant, and I'm speaking really now about the great conundrum because we may or may not be able to find the wrongdoer. That's, in fact, there, uh, there are very, very few examples of these wrongdoers being caught. Right. Right. Okay. So what does the merchant do? Does the merchant look to the bank for protection? So it seems to me that the cases have fallen into two sides. On one hand, if they believe that it's a fault of the card's security itself. So let's say that, and this was the, dis, the, the issue between magnetic cards and electronic chips. And the discussion was that the card itself was uh, subject to theft because of the, the fact the magnetic strip was easy to steal, easy to copy, and therefore the issuance of that card was part of the problem. That, those were where the claims were then made from the merchant back to the bank. Okay, I like it. So in other words, Success. the issuance of the card and the security measures that should be imposed at the issuance stage of the card should probably fall on the financial institution. That's exactly right. Now, the flip side is, and in the case of Chipotle and in Target, the fault actually came at the point of sale that was contracted by the retailer. In both cases, there was a third-party servicer, one who was providing the software in the case of Chipotle for the cash registers. 
in the case of Target, it was the third party who uh, provided the little reader machines. Okay. Okay. So the point of sale machine and the reader machine, that's a third party vendor. You're introducing that aspect. That's that's correct. And in those cases, the the reimbursement came from the retailer to the credit card company because it was determined that the retailer had the obligation to contract with a secure provider to take care of those services. Then the last piece of the action was that would then be between the retailer and the service provider as to how they were going to split. Okay, them. so so uh, merchant, retailer, and the third-party uh, point-of-sale servicer, they're going to have to duke it out over how to recover. That's exactly right. Wow, okay. And then meanwhile, Madam or Mr. Consumer is hanging out there because what I'm going to do now is set the table, Mitch, because there's residual aspects to being the victim of identity theft or credit card fraud, right? That's exactly right, and I'm happy to tell you about what we had to go through in order to, to take care of those residual effects. Wow, look at that. It landed in your lap. <laughs> You're going to be able to actually it, tell a personal story. It did. It did. Yeah, so uh, because that saga uh, and, and the efforts that you have to undertake to protect your credit is really really time-consuming, and talk about vigilance, you really need to be on it right away because of the residual impact that it can have upon your credit. And I think when we come back from the break, Mitch, we can talk about some of the important steps that you can take as a consumer. And then let's go back into the negligence aspect because I think it's pretty interesting to work through the elements of negligence uh, with respect to the bank's liability. So, when we come back, let's expand upon those topics. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about credit card fraud and identity theft. And as part of those topics, we're including uh, consumer awareness uh, tips, what you can do if you are the victim of these type of acts. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. <music> If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? 
This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us over Voice America Radio, and our topic today has been credit card fraud and identity theft. And Mitch, before the break, we were talking about uh, the uh, measures and steps that consumers can take if, in fact, they're the victims of this type of criminal activity. Yeah, I think it's important to just remind folks, there's three major credit companies, and you raised the issue of your your credit standing, Stephen, and that may be the greatest risk to the consumer because if they're vigilant and they they give notice, as we've talked about, there's somewhere between zero and most likely $500 of a limited liability, but that doesn't go to the fact that, that it could come up with a credit blemish. So it's important when you've had a credit card theft for you to check with, and these are the three key credit card com- uh, credit uh, companies that that check on these things, it's Equifax, it's Experian, and it's TransUnion. And the good news is, if you call any one of them to report that you've had a credit card theft and you want to put an alert on your on your credit, uh, they will tell the other two. So you don't have to call all three. You can call any one of them, Equifax, Experian, or TransUnion, and they will notify the other two that there's a fraud alert to keep that from wrecking your credit. You can also put a security freeze. And a security freeze is a little different. It, it keeps potential creditors from checking your record during a period that you've got this dispute going on to make sure it doesn't show these extended balances. So let's say somebody ran up, in your example, a $5,000 fraudulent transaction, and of course you're not going to pay it. It takes a little bit of time for the system 
to get that backed off of your account. In the meantime, you've got a $5,000 debit out there. And if you went to get another credit card, they might say, well, you've got a $5,000 outstanding balance. We're not going to issue you new credit because you have too much credit out there already. So you could actually put a security freeze on your account. That, unfortunately, may not be for free. And it does have many more steps than just alerting someone, alerting one of the three companies that you've got a fraud alert. And in that case, you very likely will need to show that you filed a police report in order to get a security freeze put on your card. And that, could, that can last anywhere from a month up to several years if it's an ongoing investigation. So the security freeze gives you an extra layer of protection. So the, uh, so your, there's not an additional stigma associated with the initial uh, credit card compromise. That's exactly right. So it, it is, as we come back to this uh, several times in this show, you know, not only your diligence, but you have an affirmative act. If you want the rights under the United States consumer laws, if you want the rights of the protection of the law, you do have an obligation to take action. You have to notify each of these for each of these steps. You have to notify the credit card company. You should then notify the credit rating companies of Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. And if it's going to be a complicated extended period, you need to inquire about having not just a fraud alert put on the account, but a security freeze put on to protect your credit rating. Okay, so that, that's the protection side of it. But, but Stephen, you, you mentioned that it's more than that, isn't it? Because that just assumes like everything goes away, right? And there's no problem. Right. But I can tell you from a personal standpoint, I, this happened to us last year. We had a, it appeared that our credit card number was taken from a transaction we did at a hotel. We checked into the hotel. You know, they asked for a credit card for incidentals. Well, in this case, it was somebody else's incidentals that <laughs> we're taking care of. Bringing, bringing new meaning to incidentals. <laughs> That's right. Before we knew it, within 30 days, someone was trying to pay for a major car repair in an adjacent state, a state we hadn't even been to. And so that definitely put a red flag, and we were notified by the credit card company. We put a stop to it. But you then spend the next month or two going through every single account where there's being a debit that you've authorized to that credit card could be the newspaper, could be your utilities, could be your health club. I mean, on and on and on. Every single thing where you've used a credit card could be your internet service or your website service. All those things that say, we need a credit card to make a monthly debit. Every single one of those vendors needs to be contacted to be told that that number is no longer valid. You have a new number. And, and if you forget one, which you inevitably do, then you'll get a notice that said your payment was declined. And you, you again now have to go through another process to say, oh, sorry, that credit card was compromised. Let me give you another number. And that declination would also smudge your credit. You know, it's possible. Potentially. Yes, potentially. I, I certainly, if again, if you failed to go through the process to notice everybody, you know, you could have a whole list of ten, fifteen, twenty, uh, you know, de- 
accounts that were declined. And then it would be very important, again, that you go back to Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, and make sure that your record shows that those, those payments were declined because of fraud, not because you failed to pay your bill. Yeah. You know, Mitch, let's, let's go back to the, the negligence issue and the third-party liability because I wanted to share uh, with you and our listeners uh, a, a really good description of the elements of negligence and then uh, talk about the connection between the bank's aggressive marketing because, as you know, um, banks are, are now taking measures to get credit cards into the hands of consumers and offering low rates, no rates. Uh, it's pretty easy to get a credit card issued. So those two things are very, very intertwined. Um, the negligence claim and, and in order to prove negligence on the part of a financial institution, uh, the consumer needs to prove these elements. The bank or credit agency committed some act that enabled or helped the identity theft to occur. Secondly, that the bank or credit agency owed a duty to the consumer whose identity was stolen. And third, that the bank or credit agency breached that duty. And four, that the breach was the actual and proximate cause of the consumer's injury. Kind of sounds like law school negligence elements, doesn't it? It, it sure does. I can, I can visualize my professor writing each of those up on the whiteboard. Yeah. And, <laughs> and as I mentioned earlier, it's the duty issue that is really the focal point and often the most hotly contested element when a consumer looks to the financial institution uh, as a defendant and looks for recovery. And if you look at the history of cases, it's interesting because the courts that have looked at financial institutions as liable parties have looked at the issue of what duty is owed. Uh, and they're a fiduciary, so there's a fiduciary duty which gives rise to uh, some affirmative duties on the part of uh, the institutions. But the courts have looked to the marketing aspect and how easy it is to get credit cards and how those two notions uh, sort of collide uh, because banks are looking to get credit cards issued as, at a real rapid pace. And in doing so, uh, they increase the likelihood of there being fraudulent activity and courts have looked at it that way. I know, and I have to say, and I know every once in a while I, I kind of jump in. I, I know we show our, not necessarily our political colors, but our our sense of of injustice. And and in the past two years, there have been instances where banks were found guilty. I, I shouldn't say found guilty. Banks were found to have issued accounts, false accounts in customers' names. And the customer had no notice that those accounts were opened. Individuals within the bank received commissions for opening up those accounts. When the fees started to be generated for those accounts and the consumer didn't pay them because, of course, they didn't know that those accounts had been opened, then they were found in default. Their credit was dinged for it. And so far, 
the only action against the banks has have been penalties and civil fines. And it just seems to me that that we give too much weight to the right of the banks to do this, and people should have gone to jail, which ought to ring your prosecutor's bell on that. Yeah, no, absolutely, Mitch. And, you know, one of the things that, that these cases, and I'm looking at a couple of cases that were actually um, held, that went to court several years ago, but it's the issuance phase of the cards that has actually formed the basis of liability. And right. a failure by the banks, a failure by the banks to ensure that uh, all the security measures were in place at the point of issuance. So the the uh, the harm or the foreseeability issue is that banks that fail to follow identification procedures will greatly increase the risk of fraud. And that's the theory that many courts have, have uh, held as a basis for finding the banks liable. In other words, they were negligent at the issuance phase and their failure to ensure that um, the person presenting and trying to get the card um, was in fact a real person. I know, and, and part of the political dialogue in this current administration has been how much balance should there be with the government weighing in favor of the consumer and the consumer fair trade protection agency and other consumer agencies that are funded through the government that bring a, in my opinion, a balance. They bring the weight of the government to protect the individual consumer who, who may only be losing, as we've said, $50, $500. But, but there's no there's no leverage for the consumer to protect themselves against that type of bank negligence or, in some cases, deliberate acts. It almost has to be the power of the government to stop that. And the current discussion is that perhaps that has weighed too heavily on the government and the burden on the financial institutions is so too great and that those protections ought to be lifted. As you can tell, I, for one, think that we need the protection of the government in those types of specific consumer protection areas in order to balance the playing field. Yeah, and then one other, just kind of on a downer note, Mitch, I can share that, you know, many might be wondering, well, what happens to the wrongdoer? Isn't there restitution? We've talked about that before. And if there is, in fact, a scenario where the wrongdoer is, in fact, apprehended and then goes on to be prosecuted successfully, there would be a right to restitution. But the question becomes, uh, how long will it take to pay back and whether or not that wrongdoer actually has the means to pay back. So it's precious little in terms of protection to the consumer, but there is a statutory right to restitution. That's right. And even in the case of where a company uh, voluntarily helps in this process, let's use the Target case, for example. The, the hack happened in 2013. Target didn't settle with the states that had to go through the process of dealing with this in their local consumer issues until 2017. It was almost a four-year process before that was resolved. So you're right. Uh, let's wrap up by the, the final warning again. I know we've said it a number of times, Stephen, but it's, it's diligence on the consumer standpoint. You do have protection under the federal consumer laws, but you do have an obligation to remain diligent and report credit card theft or fraud both to your credit card holder, your bank, 
and to the credit reporting agencies to get all the protection that you're due. With that, I want to remind you that, as in every week, you can get an archive of today's show at voiceamerica.com, at wagnerandwinnick.com. Until next week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 